every food that does contain fat, which is virtually all of them, contains all three fats. And people should know the three fats as saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, and polyunsaturated fat. Why would nature put all three fats in every food if one of them were trying to kill you? And, and they say, oh, unsaturated fat is super heart healthy, and saturated fat is, is heart catastrophic. So you're trying to tell me that, okay, my steak that's got seven grams of fat per 100 grams and you're trying to tell me that five of those grams are trying to save my life and two of those grams are trying to kill me. Well, according to Dr. Zoe Harkham, PhD, we might want to rethink what we think we know about saturated fat and cholesterol. So get ready for a deep dive this week. I'm Liz Earle, so welcome to the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show. This is the podcast helping us all to have a better second half. As you know, I'm on a bit of a mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. And one of the most important dietary guidelines and public health messages to have become widely acceptable, not only just in the UK but globally, is that saturated fat is bad for us and so is having high cholesterol, both pretty much undisputed facts in the world of dietary doctrine. Or are they? Well, as someone who's written extensively about the health benefits of fats and oils over the years, my very first book, in fact, written over 30 years ago now, was called Vital Oils because, well, they are just that, vital for our health. I am not so sure, and I've been an interested observer of the work in this area of Dr. Zoe Harkham. She is a Cambridge Maths graduate, a brilliantly analytical researcher and public health nutrition specialist, whose studies in this area are some of the most in-depth and specifically focused to be found in the world. Well, she joins me here to dissect the research, and all I can say is you better have your pencil and paper at the ready because it is going to be an in-depth, highly detailed, most fascinating, not to mention controversial, conversation. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. (laughs) 
Zoe, it is such a pleasure to have you back on the show. I think my listeners here know I'm a real fan of your work and I look forward every Monday to getting your note that drops into my inbox. It's always compulsive reading. So thank you for making the time for us today. Oh, thank you for having me. That's really kind. Thank you for your kind words as well. No, really, I I know that you're tireless in this and very much evidence-based, which is what we need. And I'm just so looking forward to this because you and I have been working in the world of fats and oil for a long time you know my very first book was called vital oils nearly well over 30 years ago now so this is something that I feel personally very strongly about and I get asked about it time and time again you know fat is bad we need to take fat out of the diet saturated fat we need less of etc etc so you are really known for dissecting public health particularly the dietary advice and the journal articles on nutrition that we get And in fact, I know that you were the first person to examine the evidence base for the dietary fat guidelines at the time of their introduction back in in the UK. I think that was 1983. So can we talk about what you found then and, you know, why you think it's so important to scrutinise the evidence, particularly on fat, that the public's presented with now? Yeah, really good intro, actually. Um, So I started off fascinated by obesity. And when I was at Cambridge as a student, people were starting to get more of an issue. Um, It it was becoming more of an issue. And then when I got into the world of work, suddenly obesity was not the rare thing that it was. I mean, we're both similar in this, I expect, that you can look back to your primary school or even your secondary school, and there was one um, child usually in the class that stood out for being a different size to all the other children, and all the other children were quite normal. So my first fascination was why are we starting to get an obesity issue. Why are two-thirds of the population overweight? Nobody wants to be overweight, so what is going on here? And I looked back to the time when obesity took off, and you can see this brilliant chart in the US, and it just takes off like an airplane at about 1980. And in the UK, um, approximately 2.6% of people were obese in 1972, I think it was, and then by the end of the last century, so coming up to 99, you're looking at a quarter of the population that was obese. I mean, it's practically a tenfold increase in barely 30 years. And of course, I wanted to understand why that would be the case. So what changed? So you go in and you look at the classic answers, which would be we ate too much and we did too little. Um, And you actually see that we started doing more. Um, I never saw anybody jogging or cycling or wearing lycra um, when I was kicking around on a street corner when I was younger. And of course, everybody's doing it now. Um, It's actually well documented that we're doing this more gyms, we're doing more marathons, we're doing more cycling, we're doing more. And there are some very useful data, particularly in the UK, where they looked at calorie intake and okay, it's reported calorie intake, it might not be accurate, but it certainly wasn't going up it was going down. So we're not eating more and or doing less. So what happened? And I was digging around and I was fascinated by a lot of the literature at the time. And I came across the Seven Countries study with Ansel Keys that was published in 1970. And that was the one that really started saying fat is not good for us. And then of course you look and see that they changed the US dietary guidelines around 1977. Those were embedded in the first dietary guidelines for Americans in 1980 and then of course the Brits came in with their dietary guidelines in 1983 and we basically did a u-turn in our dietary advice 
And dietary advice used to be watch the carbohydrates. If mum or granny wanted to get into their prom dress, they would watch the potatoes, didn't really have pasta, maybe rice, then watch that. And we flipped that 180 to say, right, you've now got to watch fat and thou shall have no more than 30% of thou's calories in the form of total fat and no more than 10% in the form of saturated fat. And unless somebody can give me a better explanation, that's what I think shifted the obesity epidemic. I think we changed what we ate so dramatically that that's the one thing that changed the trajectory. Fascinating. And let's dig into that. Saturated fat in particular being cut back to 10%. Is there any health reason why we should listen to that advice for that's coming down from on high? I mean, surely there must have been a reason why the government bodies have said saturated fat is bad and we need to have far less of it. It's going to give us heart disease and be implicated in cancer and, you know, all of those other things and diabetes clog up our arteries. Surely that's sensible advice. Well, this is exactly what I did my PhD in. So having become fascinated by this and I first thought, oh, I might be doing a PhD in the area of the seven countries study because I, I was so taken by it but that ended up being a big part of the review of the literature which is the background to the PhD and then I realised the one that really needed slaying or at least looking into was what was the evidence at the time for those two dietary fat guidelines and nobody had had looked at that in terms of going back to the time to say if we were the committee setting those guidelines today so let's say with the American committee in 1977, with the British committee in 1983, what evidence would we have had available and what would it have told us? And so I did, it was in four parts, my PhD. The first part said, let's go back and look at the evidence at the time and let's look at the randomized controlled trial evidence. That's the better evidence. And then let's look at the population evidence, which is not as good, but let's be complete. Let's look at both of them. And then there's a particularly important technique when you're looking at evidence called systematic review and meta-analysis. And that's generally seen as the top of the evidence pyramid. That's the best evidence that you can get. So that's what I did with my PhD. And I think if somebody had stopped me when I started my PhD and said, what are you expecting to find? I mean, you should never have a preconceived idea. Otherwise, you're not doing research. You're, you, you're prejudiced. Um, but I think if someone had stopped me, I'd have said, I'm expecting to find evidence, but I don't know how strong it is. And so I was astonished when I just could not find any evidence whatsoever. Um, and the first paper that came out of my PhD was in February 2015. And it got covered in Time magazine, Sydney Herald, New Zealand, Post, Daily Mail, Telegraph. I was, I, I think I did 30 media interviews um, TV and radio the day that it came out. I mean, it had a huge impact as it was basically saying we should never have introduced those dietary fat guidelines. And some of the astonishing findings of that PhD um, were, first of all, there were only six studies that you could pull together, um, six randomized controlled trials. None of them had involved women. They were all 100% really? men. Yeah. So immediately oh, no. women just uh, ignore all the advice. You know, they, we they just never... don't. We just don't exist, do we? So presumably nobody's looked at the role of estrogen or our XX chromosomes on all of this. No, no, they, they, they would never study women. You know, we're too neurotic, okay. we're too hormonal. Um, just don't don't go anywhere near women. So that was the first finding. No women studied whatsoever. Only two and a half thousand men had been studied and yet the introduction of these guidelines 
impacted hundreds of millions of men and women across the world because of course the US went one way, Canada followed, Australia followed, the UK followed, New Zealand followed, the whole world followed these American dietary guidelines. Uh, the other really interesting finding was that the men were sick men, they had already had a heart attack. Um, so some of the studies, I mean the Rose corn oil trial that you might be familiar with, um, I think only involved about 80 to 90 sick men who'd already had a heart attack. Um, this was just not generalizable. You couldn't take these two and a half thousand sick men and then generalize to the whole population, even if they had found something, but they found nothing. I mean, that was really? the astonishing they thing. They found nothing. Nothing. Not so what one... was this based on then? That you, I mean, they, they must have had something that they could cling on to, to yeah. say, you know, we're going to change the, the, these guidelines because of... X, X, X. Yes, I mean, it certainly wasn't based on the evidence. It wasn't based on these six studies. So in my PhD, I looked at the guidelines and said, look, they didn't actually even reference these six studies. What they did do, or certainly one of them, um, the UK one, went back and referenced the seven countries study. Um, so the seven countries study was one of the population studies that I looked looked at. It just happened to be a really well promoted one because, of course, it was Ansel Keys who was the um, sort of man of the moment. I mean, you know, he was probably, I don't know, who you know, he was sort of the, I don't know, Tim Spector or whatever of the time. Um, somebody well well known in the sort of research nutrition world, and he went into the seven country study with a massive budget. I mean, at the time he started it in in about 1956, he was given about two hundred thousand dollars, which would have been just enormous. Seven countries, sixteen cohorts. And he went in thinking, and again, only men, went in thinking that total fat was the cause of heart disease. And he couldn't find any evidence for that. The only thing he did find, he said, there seems to be an association, an association, not causation, between saturated fat, cholesterol in the blood, and coronary heart disease in men. And that's kind of all I can find. So total fat, there has never been anything found against total fat. It just hasn't, there's just nothing. Zippo, zilch. The second part of my PhD then said, okay, that was back in 1983. Let's pretend we're looking at setting the guidelines in the year I was um, finalizing my PhD, which was 2016. Surely there's more evidence today. Let's look at all the evidence mm. we've got now bring it up to date and surely we're going to find that there's good evidence against total fat and saturated fat and lo and behold there's again no evidence whatsoever against total fat and there are a couple of things against saturated fat which just can so easily be explained away and they were only found by one group of people who've looked at this and all the other groups of people didn't find anything and I explain in my PhD why Hooper et al. Um, found something that nobody else found and it was all very very suspect and didn't withstand scrutiny etc etc so there just isn't anything and yet this has determined our dietary advice and got us into a lot of trouble over the last 40 years. So if taking high levels of fat out of our diet and eating less saturated fat if that's happened which it has happened over the last 30 years or so how come we are getting fatter? What, that just doesn't seem to make any sense. Yeah, it does. Um, this was a bit of a penny drop moment for me, and it's so obvious. A picture in front of you, a pie chart, a little circle, and protein. This is a sort of little-known nutrition fact. I can give you references for it empirically or theoretically. 
protein just tends to stay a fairly constant 15%, maybe 15 to 20% of any natural diet. And that actually holds for an omnivore diet. It holds for a vegetarian diet. It really is extraordinary how constant protein tends to be, probably because protein is just in everything. It's in everything from an apple to lettuce to eggs to dairy products, red meat and so on. So nature kind of puts it in in a certain amount. So the minute you've drawn a little segment that's about 15% of your pie, when you next put in the fat segment of the pie and they want you to make that only 30%, you can immediately see what has happened. The rest of the mm. pie is 55% and the rest of the pie has to be carbohydrate because there are right. only three macronutrients. There's only three things with calories that we eat. So when they set that dietary fat restriction, at the same time, they set a minimum intake of carbohydrate. Now, when they did that, they didn't know that that was healthy. They didn't even know that it was safe. It was just an inevitable consequence of setting that dietary fat restriction. So inevitably, eating less fat means that we eat more carbohydrates, i.e. sugars. Absolutely. And back to the advice that we used to believe, I mean, you go back to the, the brilliant quotation that Gary Taubes found from Tanner's Practice of Medicine, 1869, and that held for way over 100 years. And it was something like farinaceous, which is flowery, foods are fattening, and vegetable matters, which was really interesting. So it said farinaceous and vegetable foods are fattening and saccharine matters especially so. So they were basically mm. saying flour, even vegetables, starchy things, and definitely sugar is fattening. And then we flipped that advice on its head and said, oh no, it's fat that's going to make you fat. And therefore everyone ended up eating carbohydrate. And of course, carbohydrate also fuels type two diabetes, we have zero requirement for carbohydrate. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't eat it. I'm not a carnivore. I'm not even keto. I'm not one of these um, sort of extreme eaters mm. in any way, shape or form. I'm just making the factual point that we actually don't need to consume it. And yet we are being told to have it as the major part of our diet. And I think that that advice has been catastrophic for human health. Well, that's a very strong statement. And certainly when you look at the food pyramid, many of us will be familiar with the food pyramid, with the foods that they, the powers on high, say that we should be eating most of. The, the bottom of that, the largest proportion of our food, is all the carbohydrate. When you when you read it, it's the bread, the potatoes, the, the pasta, the, the beans, the pulses. You know, all of that is supposed to be the mainstay and then you go up and then you've got your high quality proteins and saturated fat, you know, butter, cream, etc. right at the very top as, as minimal. Yeah. And there are so many myths about saturated fat. So it, it's just I just feel it's some sort of criminal that we need to release from jail in some way. It's just been so <laughs> misdemeanored. I mean, I, I just feel Free it's almost... the saturated fat one. <laughs> yes. I feel it's my, my life mission to get this poor nutrient uh... out of jail. I mean, people just, they just don't have a clue. Um, dietitians, particularly, unfortunately, when it comes to saturated fat. So let, let's have a look at some sort of basic rules about fat. So first of all, virtually every food contains fat. Um, virtually every food. So sucrose is not a food. That's table sugar. That contains no fat. It's 100% carbohydrate. At the other end of the sort of macronutrient spectrum, you've got oils and lard and 100% fats, which don't contain any protein or carbohydrate, they're 100% fat. So 
the only thing that I can actually find on this planet that doesn't even contain a trace of fat is that sucrose that's just got no protein or fat. In sufficient quantities, you'll even find traces of fat in things like lettuce, in fruits, in vegetables, in salads. I mean, it really is a trace. But what mm. would nature be doing putting even a trace of fat in virtually every food that is provided if this fat thing were quite so bad for us? I mean, yes, we can largely ignore fat in things like salads, vegetables, fruits, um, apart mm -hmm. from our avocado, which um, which obviously is, is much more fatty and probably a nut anyway. Um, but when you start moving into things like grains, legumes, you start to have a little bit more than a trace, particularly some of the legumes. Um, and then you move into the, the lower carb foods, so meat, fish, eggs, dairy, nuts, seeds. And of course, you're looking at a large fat content in a lot of those. Protein still tends to be the major part of a lot of those foods, um, but they're certainly much higher in fat compared to the fruits and vegetables. And the second fact about fat that people are just not familiar with, not only do, does almost every food contain fat, but every food that does contain fat, which is virtually all of them, contains all three fats. And people should know the three fats as saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, and polyunsaturated fat. So you have dietitians going around saying, oh, olive oil, which is monounsaturated fat. It's like, well, it contains monounsaturated fat, but it also contains saturated and polyunsaturated fat. And then they'll say, oh, meat is full of saturated fat. So I presented this at a conference in Dublin a couple of weeks ago, and I put up a picture of a steak. And I said, okay, let's go through what a steak actually is. So this is a raw steak, uh, first of all, it's 71% water because most real food is mostly water. So you colour 71% of the steak blue, then it's about 21% protein. So you colour that section, um, let's say orange. It's got some ash and some minerals. And then it's got about 7% of that steak in the form of fat. And of those seven percentage points that are fat, about two are saturated fat. So saturated fat literally is the last thing that it is. And yet, That's of course, not what we're led to believe at all, is it? You think no. that red meat is full of saturated well, fat. Well, this is what we're told, aren't we? I mean, dietitians put it up on the television. They say, oh, meat is, red meat is full of saturated fat. And I'm screaming at the television, saying it is literally the last thing that it is. Not that it's bad for you anyway. But no, just not, not that set, it's, okay. Set the yes. record straight. Why would nature put all three fats in every food if one of them were trying to kill you and, and they say, oh, unsaturated fat is super heart healthy and saturated fat is, is heart catastrophic. So you're trying to tell me that, okay, my steak that's got seven grams of fat per 100 grams, and you're trying to tell me that five of those grams are trying to save my life and two of those grams are trying to kill me. I, I, yeah. I, mean, I just don't even know where to start. It's like, I'm not that stupid. It's uh, well, we'll we'll come on and we'll talk in the second part about the link between saturated fats and cholesterol, because that's a question that I get asked and I'm sure that you get asked a lot as well. But let's just finish off this conversation about the fats, because I think it's very interesting that polyunsaturates have been presented as the goodie in all of this and monounsaturates to a certain extent and saturates are bad. And we've just seen the proliferation over the last few decades of low fat foods high in polyunsaturates i'm thinking of things like sunflower oil spreads and low-fat yogurts and you know skim milk and, and all of that what's your view on why they came to be and what role they should play if any in our healthy eating oh i think the why is quite easy actually and i think it's hand in hand with the demonization of the saturated fat 
Um, so the why is because they're incredibly cheap and they're incredibly malleable in processed food practices. So in food technology, um, they're far more, um, they're, they're cheaper, they're just easier to manipulate. They also happen to be quite um, dangerous. I, I think it's fair to use that word because they're far less stable than saturated fat. So butter, for example, now you know those facts about fat, you know that butter is not entirely saturated fat. It does contain saturated fat, and that is actually the main fat in butter. Um, but of course, it also contains monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fat because we now know the rules about fat. So butter is um, solid at room temperature. Olive oil is liquid at room temperature, but then would go solid if you put it in the fridge. And of course, the polyunsaturated fats like the sunflower oil, rapeseed oil and so on, they're just liquid the whole time. So they're much more malleable in terms of food technology. But they also, as a result of that malleability, they also mutate at high temperatures, which is why I think they're quite dangerous to cook with. Um, if you're stir frying, then use something more saturated like butter or coconut oil. If you find that that overpowers the taste of vegetables, sure, use olive oil because that's more monounsaturated but don't mm -hmm. start cooking with rapeseed oil or polyunsaturated fats but they they've become an industry in themselves because you can put them into spreads that you can use on bread um, straight mm. from the fridge so the fake food companies want you having these fake spreads going on the bread that they also want to sell you and of course they're just so easy to put into low-fat biscuits low-fat cakes low-fat yogurts low-fat everything and that's what they've been trying to sell us for the last 40 years. So I think so much of this is conflicts of interest from the fake food industry and public health should stand up to the fake food industry. But time and time again, we see that they actually work in tandem with those organisations rather than standing up for humans. Well, lots to talk about. Don't go away because I do want to continue that train of thought and look in particular now into the connection between fats and cholesterol. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Zoe, let's move on to cholesterol. And I'm sure that you can move your guns, if you like, into the firing (laughs) line of cholesterol here and, and blow some myths out of the water here. We hear a lot about, quote, good and bad forms of cholesterol. Is it really as simple as that? Oh, no, gosh. I mean, I will tell you a little anecdote, actually, because I was chatting to a friend of mine from Australia recently, Dr. Gary Fetke is an orthopedic surgeon who's done so Mm. much trying to stop people having limbs amputated because they ate too Mm -hmm. much carbohydrate. And um, we were chatting about cholesterol, funnily enough. And he says he quite often has fellow doctors saying to him, oh, aren't you worried about the cholesterol of your patients? And he'll say to them, what's cholesterol? And they can't answer it. And then they just sort of shuffle away, um, which I think is really funny, actually. So again, I I spoke at this conference recently and I said, um, we need to know what cholesterol is. So cholesterol, if you held it in your hand, it would be as if some sort of vanilla coloured candle had melted in your hand. So it's this sort of waxy, pale coloured substance. That's what it would look like. Um, But of course, its importance is that it's integral to every single cell in the human body without cholesterol in every single cell we would cease to exist we would have no cell structure we would have no form we would literally be a puddle on the floor so cholesterol is so completely and utterly life vital it is impossible to describe how important it is to the human body and the chemical formula for cholesterol cholesterol is is basically hydrogens carbons and oxygens as are so many um, things on this planet Um, So the chemical formula is C27H46O, which is basically 27 carbon atoms, 46 hydrogen atoms, and then an oxygen atom. And you can see the structure of cholesterol if you just Google um, cholesterol chemical formula. And that is the chemical formula for cholesterol. And there is only one version of cholesterol. There is no good version or there's no bad version. So what about HDL and LDL then? Yeah, yeah. And this is really, really, really important. So If you got a glass of water and you dropped a little dash of olive oil into it, it doesn't mix. Um, So the olive oil just sits on top of the water. And this is the problem that we have in the human body because the blood is basically water and we have a fantastic need for lipids, for fats around the human body. So every cell needs phospholipids, protein, cholesterol, um, triglycerides. They need fats. Every cell needs these fats. So we don't actually have these fats traveling in the bloodstream as fats because they would be like the olive oil. And then our our blood actually would clog up because it would be like pouring a whole, you know, injecting 
a whole load of olive oil into our bloodstream, which would be a, a really bad idea. So the body is just brilliant. So the body has designed these little things called lipoproteins. I think of them as taxis. So they're little taxis traveling around the body and they're fat friendly on the inside so they can look after all the cargo, the fats in the taxi, but they're water friendly on the outside so they can travel through the bloodstream without clotting it up or clogging it up in any way. So we have five major categories of lipoproteins and one of them is called high density lipoprotein and that's abbreviated to HDL. And another is called low density lipoprotein and that one is abbreviated to LDL. And those are the two that we tend to hear about most often. Mm. There's also VLDL, there's chylomicrons and there's IDL, but they don't play quite such a big part. So let's focus on the two lipoproteins, the high density one and the low density one, HDL and LDL. They both carry exactly the same things. So they both carry cholesterol, protein, phospholipids and triglycerides. Now there happens to be more cholesterol in the LDL taxi because the LDL taxi is the one going away from the liver out to all the cells and all the cells need the cholesterol to repair, to keep the cell integrity. So the taxi is going out to deliver its cargo so it's going to be more full of cholesterol and then when the mm -hmm. cell has taken the cholesterol it needs from that taxi the HDL then actually carries stuff back to the liver not for the liver to get rid of which you'd think if cholesterol were that dangerous then the liver would be getting rid of all the cholesterol it could no not at all but to be recycled to get packaged and to go off around the body again so one is carrying cholesterol away from the liver to the cells and the other is carrying cholesterol back from the cells to be recycled so one is naturally going to have more cholesterol than the others so of course calling it LDL cholesterol is basically saying the cholesterol in the LDL taxi but doctors don't seem to know that and they talk about it as if L they, they drop the sort of the LDL cholesterol thing or they just think LDL mm. is cholesterol it's not it's a taxi it's like calling people a taxi people is not a taxi a taxi <laughs> is what carries people you know I can't I, I can't get that doctors are so ignorant in this field that they genuinely sit down with patients and say, oh, I'm really pleased with your LDL cholesterol. I'm really not pleased with your HDL cholesterol. It's like, well, it's the same cholesterol, doc. You're just measuring it in two different taxes. So you're basically saying that the LDL is your taxi full of cholesterol going around the body and your HDL is your empty taxi going back to be recycled and refueled. Yeah, not, within not empty. The liver. Yeah, not empty. Not empty. It, it has less. I mean, again, you, you can look less. at this. Okay. Um, we can always put one of my posts on as a show note or something. I've done somewhere I've shown the proportion of those four things, protein, uh, phospholipids, mm -hmm. triglycerides and cholesterol. You can see the proportions in each of those taxes. And from memory, I think um, about 50% of the LDL taxi is cholesterol and it might be 20% of the HDL taxi that is cholesterol. So it, it's just, it is what it is. That's how the body works. So is there any bearing on health then if we have our HDL and our LDL measured? I know doctors get very excited when we when we have little pinprick blood tests and they are we get our results back for our triglycerides and they can say oh well done you know you've got high levels of this or low levels of that it, is there any point to that well again I mean that that is hilarious because when you look at how they do your blood tests so I think the equation off the top of my head is total cholesterol equals HDL cholesterol so the cholesterol in the HDL taxi 
plus LDL cholesterol, which is the cholesterol in the LDL taxi. Mm-hmm. And I think it's minus or plus the triglycerides over five. And that's something to do with the Friedwald equation. But they can actually only measure two of those. So when they do the blood test, they can only measure the cholesterol in the HDL and total cholesterol. So they're actually guessing the other two. You know, I happen to do maths at Cambridge, but you don't need to have done maths at Cambridge to realise one equation, four unknowns, only two of which you can measure. You can't solve that. So is there any indication then that having these blood tests is a reliable indication of helping to prevent heart disease? And, and I guess fundamentally, does cholesterol cause heart disease? Should we be measuring it in the first place? I don't think so. That's just my personal opinion. Um, I don't think it's a helpful measurement. I think it's become a helpful measurement because there are things that can lower it that are fantastically lucrative. Um, I mean, I think Lipitor (laughs) was the first um, medication to hit, I don't know, $29 billion worth of revenue or something. I mean, it's just insane how much money has been made in lowering cholesterol. Um, personally, But surely it's, it's, it's a good thing to lower cholesterol. I mean, is it going to harden our arteries and prevent heart attacks and stroke? Personally, I think it's a bad thing um, because I think the body was designed for a reason and I don't like pharmaceutical companies playing God, shall we say. Um, mm. And I think if the body is designed for a reason and there is a pathway in the body called the mevalonate pathway, which starts off at the sort of HMGA reductase, whatever level, and ends up making cholesterol and CoQ10, quite interestingly, that we should not be trying to block that pathway. Now, I can say as an absolute fact, if statins manage to block that pathway completely, then the person would be the puddle on the floor. They, they would kill the first person who took a statin instantly, but they don't block it completely. They impair the pathway, which means they do lower cholesterol. They absolutely do lower cholesterol. Mm -hmm. But I personally don't think that that's a good thing. I think the body makes cholesterol for a reason. It's one of our main repair tools in the body. What I think the most that might be going on is that it might be a marker. So if we have an injury, if we have an illness, then the body needs more repair. So let's say we tear an ankle, we break a bone, Um, The body needs more repair and the body should make more cholesterol to go to the damaged area to repair that damaged area. If we've got arterial damage, ironically, the body should make more cholesterol so that the cholesterol is going to the scene of the damage in the artery and then repairing that damage. Of course, if the person then has a heart attack and you do an autopsy, you're going to find cholesterol at the scene of the damage, but you're going to find firefighters at the scene of the fire. They didn't start the fire. So I I thought, well, maybe cholesterol is a marker. And if the body's making more cholesterol, it's because you're stressed or you're damaged in some way. You might know, you might sprain your ankle, you might, mm-hmm. it might be internal damage, you might not know. Maybe it's a marker. Um, but I actually looked at the average cholesterol levels of 192 countries in the world and matched it against the death rate separately for men and women all deaths and separately heart deaths, World Health Organization data. I did this back in 2010. I updated it and it ended up in an academic paper in 2021. So it's now published, peer reviewed. And the relationship between the average cholesterol level of each country and the deaths of the people in that country is inverse. So the higher the cholesterol, the lower the death rate, the lower the cholesterol, the higher the death rate. And that holds for men and women, all deaths and heart disease deaths. 
And I did not expect to find that. So I'm not even sure it's a marker. That is absolutely astonishing. That enormous pile of data, global, all those countries peer-reviewed, showing that the higher the levels of cholesterol, the lower the all-cause mortality of that country. So that's including heart disease, stroke, cancer, anything else that heart disease Diabetes, or the cholesterol may suicide, have been yeah, anything. implicated in. That is is just staggering. I, I think people listening to this are going to be just sort of jaw-dropping uh, with this information. So what is the upshot then? Should we just ignore cholesterol? Should we be, you know, promoting eating more saturated fat? Should we be having these blood tests showing our HDL, LDL? Should we be even thinking about regulating our cholesterol? In my opinion, no. Um, it's not something I measure. It's not something I'm interested in. I actually would be more worried if my cholesterol were low as opposed to high, because I know that about 25% of the cholesterol in my body um, is needed for the brain. And I want my brain to be as sharp as possible. I don't want it to decline as I age. Um, and I think therefore that statins are, this is my opinion, statins are particularly um, dangerous in older people because I think it is reducing the cholesterol in their brain and I think it is having a, a cognitive impact. I think there is a relation between the increase that we're seeing in dementia, Alzheimer's and cognitive impairment in older years and the number of people that have been trying to lower their cholesterol over a number of years. Um, so it's not something I'm going to measure. It's absolutely not something I'm going to try to lower just to sort of close off the saturated fat aspect um, and this is a challenge that Malcolm Kendrick and he's done so much work in in this area he's he's one of my heroes in this area and in his brilliant 2007 book The Great Cholesterol Con he threw out a challenge and he said I actually can't see how saturated fat can raise LDL let alone that it does and I've looked at the same thing as well and I cannot see it's an entirely separate system in the body um, so let's say, let, let's take the product that has the highest saturated fat content of any other product on the planet, and that is coconut oil. So it's about 92% saturated fat. And of course, the other 8% is mono and polyunsaturated fat. So let's say I um, glug down half a cup of, of coconut oil. That is then going through my digestive system and it goes through the stomach. It's not, it's got no proteins. The stomach doesn't really need to do anything. It goes down into the bowel, lower intestine and all the rest of it, where the fats are taken out and put into the lymphatic system. And they go on to a lipoprotein called chylomicrons. Um, and they then go off around the body to deliver dietary fat and the fat soluble vitamins that we also need going around the body. So that's what happens to that coconut oil. In a completely separate universe, there's something called the liver, and the liver doesn't directly make LDLs, those lipoproteins. The liver makes very low-density lipoproteins, which we also call triglycerides. VLDLs then break down to become IDLs. IDLs then break down to become LDLs. And Malcolm has also looked at this. So some people will say, oh, so if your VLDL goes up, then your LDL goes up. Well, actually, no, that doesn't happen either. But where did that saturated fat ever go near the liver to start being turned into, well, it wasn't even LDL. It Was it VLDL? Was it IDL? You know, what's your argument here, guys? Tell, explain to me how you think 
saturated fat can impact LDL. And I don't know. And if any of your listeners know, then please get them to to write in. I just think it becomes one of these fantastic myths. Zoe, fascinating. I'm going to have to go away and re-listen to all of this with a notepad and pen. (laughs) And I'm sure that we will revisit. I would love to hear comments on this. And I honestly thought at the beginning of our conversation that we would be really solely concentrating on obesity, you know, weight gain, heart disease, stroke, maybe touch on a little bit of type 2 diabetes. But your link with what you're saying or the, the possibility that lowering cholesterol levels could have an impact, a negative impact on brain health. And as we've seen, the staggering rise in Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's and you know all sorts of neuro issues is something that surely we need to look at in much greater detail. I'm, I'm absolutely amazed and uh, gobsmacked, I think, frankly, is probably the word I'm looking for. Yeah, they've actually tried to claim the opposite with that, actually. So um, they've actually tried to say that statins are helpful for dementia. And we were trying to reverse engineer this in a, in a chat forum. Um, and it, the chat forum is just basically people who are not bothered about cholesterol. And the only conclusion that we could come to was that people um, who are on statins tend to have higher cholesterol. That's why you end up getting put on statins. Yes. And if you've got higher cholesterol, then you've probably had the protective benefit in terms of mm. your cognitive health for a longer period of time. Um, right. And that was about the only conclusion that we could come to because we could not see in any in any way at all how lowering cholesterol could be healthy for cognitive um, function and brain health just can't see it well zoe as always you've left us with an awful lot to think about i'm glad i've got a little bit of brain power left (laughs) to go away and process it thank you very much indeed for your time and i'm sure that this is a subject that we are going to return to many many times thank you for today thank you for having me Oh gosh, so much to think about there, isn't there? Thank you so much again, Zoe, and for all the work that you do in pulling apart the science for mere mortals like me who just don't have the time, not to mention the brain span, to forensically interrogate the data in such an unbiased and comprehensive way. So what do you think? Do you agree with Zoe and others' theory that there could be a link between lowering cholesterol levels and increasing rates of dementia and other neurological disorders? Do you know, we know now that the brain contains around 60% pure fat and that the brain contains the highest level of cholesterol in the entire body, with around 20% of our whole body's cholesterol content found in the brain. And presumably it's there for a reason. Well, one subject I know that you've been scrutinising on the podcast is the way that we talk about food and diets and nutrition too. I received this email from Carolyn who says, I love your podcast and I was listening to the one with Tess Daly. Please, please stop saying calorie counting doesn't work. I've been a lifelong dieter, done them all. It's only been through a combination of calorie counting alongside being aware of what my food is and how it impacts me that I finally got to where I want to be. I've lost nearly five stone and more importantly, I'm maintaining now with a new mindset. I'm nearly 53 and I am fitter and healthier and at a normal weight. I've never been there since I was about 15. Stop the blunt 
all or nothing calorie counting doesn't work, it's not helpful. Example, walnuts, healthy and great for you with proven links to good brain health, but high in calories. So as an obese person looking to lose weight, I had them, but I had to weigh them and be aware of how they impacted my whole day or week's calorie consumption. You have provided some thought-provoking response here, but I think it's also important to distinguish between those having personal goals of weight loss versus maintaining overall long-term health. And also, you know, how metabolic health affects our healthy weight management for the future if eating low-calorie processed foods, for example, which disrupts our all-important gut microbiome. One episode I'm thinking of in particular that could provide a useful point of balance here is my chat with Dr. Giles Yeo when he spoke about why calories aren't necessarily always the most important numbers to look at. Do check back through our archives to find this fascinating chat. And as always, if you'd like to get in touch, we love to hear and carry on these conversations. My podcast team are on social media at Lizelle Wellbeing and you can find me at Lizelle Me. And of course, if you want to listen back to that Giles Yeo episode and all future episodes ad-free, you can now subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee and you get early access to our episodes as well. Well, next week, something new and interesting coming across the airwaves. So please make sure that you join me. Until then, go very well. Bye-bye. The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.